Welcome to Startup Success, the podcast for startup founders and investors. Here you'll find stories of success from others in the trenches as they work to scale some of the fastest growing startups in the world. Stories that will help you in your own journey. Startup Success starts now. Welcome to Startup Success. Today we have Karen Sinha, founder and CEO of Lumix and Studio. Karen, welcome. We're looking forward to speaking with you today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat. Thank you. So first of all, I love how you describe your company, uh, Brands Portal, your Brands Portal into the metaverse, just because as somebody with a marketing background that immediately caught my attention. And I love the whole e-commerce play. So if you could walk us through for everybody listening, what uh, Lumix does and then why you founded it. Sure. Illumix is really kind of an augmented reality infrastructure. So the idea is to be able to connect brands and experiences from where they are today, which tend to be much more 2D, much more passive, into a future that is more 3D and interactive and really more about the user and their experience. It's you know, been our theory, and I think this has played out, that the world has been becoming more immersive and more interactive over time. You look at you know, Facebook and Twitter with text and Instagram moving to images and TikTok moving to videos and certainly gaming and that whole world has been very heavily involved in 3D immersive interactive for a while. But those types of behaviors we're seeing seep into our everyday lives and Illumix's goal is really to enable that across a variety of different use cases, whether that's how you shop, moving it from looking at a 2D image to maybe trying something on in 3D or you know how you play, moving from a 2D screen where you're just tapping things to something where it's really immersive and something that's encapsulating the world around you. We have so many clients that are in uh, commerce and they always talk about how difficult it is now because people aren't going into the stores so much. So then helping them translate their decision online. And I know for me, just buying jewelry, buying clothes, it's not the same online. I'm constantly disappointed with what shows up. So how did you come to start this company? It's very impressive. You know, I think like most founders, in some ways, I almost feel like it was an accident. I was really interested in the space, right? I I never thought I was going to be an entrepreneur. It wasn't something that was really on my radar as a career path, but I was very dedicated in my academia. I thought I was going to be a professor, actually. And it was through that kind of passion for the technology and the product where I could start to see how this would impact people's daily lives, right? It was, I think there was always a desire to create a wider impact. And while I think in kind of academia, you can have incredible impact in your field or on specific students, which is incredibly valuable, I became more interested in how products and businesses can ultimately enable that for a much wider swath and how and specifically, I think technology companies over the past you know, decades really have been the most impactful in changing our day-to-day lives. And I think I saw that opportunity with the research and the work I was doing and felt compelled to sort of chase that down. Wow, that's fascinating, especially because you were leaning towards being a professor. That's so different. It's just... <laughs> yeah, I, I love it. How, how different my life might be if I right, had gone down right, that route. Right. Yeah. yeah, very different. So how did you get started? Because I know a lot of people listening have a great idea. There's something that, that they're passionate about that's, you know, they keep getting drawn to. But taking that initial first step, how did that work out for you? Did you quit a job? Like, walk us through that. 
I was lucky in that I think I was able to iterate on the product and the technology while I was still in graduate school. So I had a little bit of that kind of barrier underneath me, but I really went at it, I think, full, like with full commitment. And in general, I'd say if you're looking at building something, there's probably two big things to realize. One is that it's never a great time. Like it was never going to be a great time to start something. The stars are never going to magically align. You'll probably have to give something up, but it has to be that your conviction and what you're building is greater than the sacrifice that you would, that you were, that you're making. And so I think that should never be a barrier. And on the other hand, I would say before, before making that, make sure your conviction is as high as you think it is. There are a lot of things I think people can do at an early phase that test whether or not the idea resonates without having to build anything. So for example, if you were, this is a very simple concept, if you were going to sell sweaters online and you felt really passionate about that, the easiest way I would argue, the most efficient way to do that is probably not by going and trying to figure out how to make a sweater or what your full supply chain line and distribution is. It would be just to put up a website that you could build in an afternoon and see if anyone clicks on the links. You can say they're sold out or you know not in stock right now or drop your email, but know that you have some traction first. We did that with Illumix, both with websites and with lots of interviews. And that I think saved us a lot of time in making sure we were going after the right type of product. I created, I think like hundreds of websites, kind of publicizing different concepts in the space and dropping them into, you know, Reddits, which I got completely banned from, and you know different forums and groups and things like that, just to see uh, if it got interested with the right group of people with that kind of initial user, and that gave me confidence in what I was doing before I was able to make kind of decisions around dropping out or kind of committing full time. Thank you for sharing that because I I like that also because you were tailoring your offering to what the market wanted and where the interest was, but you, you're not saying, I knew from day one, which I think some people pretend that they did, but they didn't. And the fact that you tested in all these creative ways, kind of, I, I can just see it with the different websites. And I know what it's like to be kicked out of Reddit because I had a friend <laughs> do the same thing. And yes, yeah, so I like that. That's how you really started because that's how you get probably, you probably learned so much and probably had some surprises, did you? Absolutely. It was incredible to see kind of, you know, when we looked at the data of which website was resonating, there was like one which was really around this idea of AR for these media worlds or fantasy worlds, which is really where we started as a company that had just so much more engagement and excitement around it than everything else. And I think it's, it might have been something we suspected, but there were a lot of different versions of that that we were not sure of. And I think you have to treat as a founder, there's a balance between having conviction and understanding that everything is a hypothesis, right? So there are certain things, maybe it's around the mission, maybe it's around the focus, maybe it's around the impact, whatever it is that makes you want to do this, that should never change. But I think that how you get there, the right vehicle for achieving that can always change. And you should never assume that that's set in stone. So I think it's always about being able to understand what your hypothesis is and figure out what's the most efficient experiment to validate or invalidate that. We had a guest on recently and they were saying being a founder is kind of like being a scientist. You have a hypothesis and you experience, you know, you do experiments and you get data and you make decisions. And that's basically what you just said right there, which makes so much sense. And it, 
and it worked out. And so then let's delve into the other thing. It's getting started, but also the fundraising piece. And you had a lot of success with this as well already. If you could kind of walk us through that. Fundraising is always difficult. I would highly question if anyone says, oh, it came easy to me. The reality is it's a lot of rejection. It's a lot of going out to the market and having people question all of your decisions and conviction. And I think it's a lot of, it's almost a test of staying true to that conviction and to what you believe in in your company. And I think uh, what's challenging about it is you never know how many no's you have to get through to get to the yes, right? It's kind of keeping faith that that yes will be there in the end. But certainly, I think at different phases, there are different ways to kind of structure and think about your fundraise, right? If you're pre-product, we're really talking about the strength of the team and the market, right? Really being able to emphasize the potential that this has and how you have the right people to execute against it is important because again, it goes back to that hypothesis component of they probably are guessing that your product is going to change, right? So it's less about that in early days. As you kind of go through the fundraising process in later phases, it becomes much more about traction and product market fit showing that you built the right thing to address that market with that team, right? It's, it's kind of triangulating those three points. And then finally, as you kind of get into growth, it really becomes about showing that you have a repeatable vehicle to be able to continue to scale that business or scale that product, whatever it is. And so I think a lot of times you can kind of end up with very generic decks that go, don't get into what needs to be focused on. But I would say for anyone who is fundraising, really understanding what phase you are in, what it is that you have already achieved and what it is you need to prove to get to the next phase is probably like, if you can nail those three things, I think you can be successful in any fundraise. Excellent. I like how you broke it into phases too. That makes a lot of sense. So when you were early stage, did you focus then a lot on building a good team around you? Yes. I think it's the single most important thing a founder can do. Uh, One, because that's, you know, the people build the product, right? It's the people that are going to determine if your product is successful or not. And two, those choices, I think, have impact, right? We certainly found that those early hires, they bring in people who they've worked with if they think highly of the company and they think things are going well. So if you start with A players, they're going to bring in A players. If you start with D-level players, they probably don't even know many A players to bring in later. And so you're actually really stabbing yourself in the foot. And I'd say the other piece there, that's on the actual execution, being an operator and creating a great product or a great company, I think always comes from having a superstar team and being able to you know, create the right environment and culture for that team to thrive. But from a fundraising perspective to tie into the last point, a big part of why people care so much about the team, partially because they know it's an indicator for future success, but also because it tells them whether you as a founder are capable of selling your vision. If you can't bring in the best people, then how are you going to bring in great clients? How are you going to continue to grow? What does a big part of your job as a CEO or founder is selling? You're selling to VCs, you're selling to your team, you're selling to whoever your customer is. Storytelling really has to be a part of what you do. And if you are not able to convince other people to join your vision, then that's not a great indication for whether you're going to make it or that company is going to make it. But if you're small and you have basically nothing but an idea and you're able to bring in great people who want to follow you, that's a pretty good indication that you're going to make something work. It's an excellent indication. And I've, you know, I've heard a lot about team on this show, but when you 
put it that way, it makes perfect sense. I mean, that's the first group that you're selling to. You're right. So then you're scaling. The market has been one way. The market is changing. How are you reacting to things now? Because we're that's kind of we're act, asking founders right now. It's just a, such a weird time out there because no one really knows what exactly is going on. It's certainly a murky market condition. And it's distinctly different than when we started the company. I would be shocked if there's any founder that's not worried or thinking about their strategy or reevaluating the way they're approaching their operations. I think that when it comes to fundraising and thinking about the market, there's a few pieces here. Part of this also depends on phase. If you're a later phase company, you might be getting rocked a little bit harder than an earlier phase company, but I think everyone's feeling it to some level. It goes down to what the focus is. I think in kind of incredible bull markets where everyone is growing and everything is great, really the mantra is growth. And you see this with companies like, like Uber or WeWork, or there's a, a ton of these where it's kind of growth at all costs, split scaling of how can you take that capital and invest in owning as much of a market as possible quickly? And that's really what your fundraise is often about is your growth. As we move into different market conditions, people look for, you still have to grow just to be clear, but I think it's, they start to look at different metrics as well. What are your unit economics? How can you reach profitability? Those things become important. So it becomes almost growth efficiency. Can you grow, but can you do so in a way that might actually be cash flow positive one day? Things that I think we've seen a lot of these mega tech companies that are hugely successful and have touched a lot of our lives, maybe never having achieved or just you know years after being public starting to achieve. And so I think that the tolerance for that decreases as market conditions deteriorate. So I think that one of the things that becomes more highlighted in, in a fundraising cycle today would be those unit economics. It would be that path to profitability. And I like how you phrased it around growth efficiency, because you have to grow, but you need to preserve cash. You need to kind of double down. And yes. And so how do you do that? You've got all these, you know, macro factors influencing you, but also stay true to what you're trying to accomplish with your vision and keep your team motivated. How are how do you balance the two? I think it's just being very straightforward and honest about what's going on and how that impacts the business. I think the worst thing you can do, and it's easy to fall into this as a founder because there's so many things going on, especially in a changing market condition where you might, my guess is you're extra busy, but being able to communicate and fill the void of worry that might be in their heads, I think is important. Whether that's, hey, we're going to have to look at, you know, our operating expenses um, it, or whether it's, this is what's happening in the market. We need to double down on these KPIs. This is how we're going to shift the business. Or here's how we're going to adjust the future plans we have. Here's how it impacts our target goals or KPIs. I think being very clear about this is we kind of always structure all hands as there's always a part that's like, what's going on in the wider world and how does that impact us? And, and then as well as our kind of internal company moments. But we always have those two components as well. And I think it just helps to connect the dots and realize how interconnected everything is and just create better understanding of what is happening in the macro space and why decisions are being made. It's that why that I think is always so important. So you're all hands. I just want to touch on this because I really like this idea. You, you touch on what's happening big picture, but then you also, you know, touch on the why of what you're doing company-wide. 
Yes, yes. There's usually three parts. So there's the internal kind of updates, what's going on. It's the what's going on, what are our targets, that kind of piece. There's a what's happening in the broader world, what's happening in the, you know, that could be anything from the war to, you know, certain tech stocks or something maybe in our specific sector that's happening and what's happening in the world. And then that kind of phase of how does that impact us? And it might be that there isn't a huge short-term impact, but here are the things we're thinking about as we look into the future. Or it might be there's a big impact and we need to shift courses a little bit. Or, you know, often it's something in between of here are things that we're thinking about. We're not quite sure what to do yet. Here are things that we suspect we are going to have to do or here are things we're already doing. But I think it's just having that narrative and, uh, you know, being transparent around those pieces. Yes, because your employees... You know, they're all reading the news, they're seeing all of that. But I think this is important for founders to note by being transparent, you're not letting everything rock your boat, but you're acknowledging it, you're shifting where it might impact you, but then you're staying on course. I think that's a great way to structure those. And I think it's because also you don't know what something, what how someone's going to feel about something. So sometimes there are things like a competitor raises a, a big round, which is always something that I think. At the beginning, it used to really impact me. Now I don't care at all. But um, you know, if it, but you know, it might be something that well, you don't care and you're not impacted. Someone reading that in your company might be concerned, and so it's always good to address it and say, "Hey, this person, you know, raised around or this, you know, product's coming out, whatever. How does this impact us?" And it can be not at all. We keep our heads down. We focus on us. We focus on our customers, not our competitors. And it's just reinforcing that message and giving that answer where people might project. And so. I would say whether it's, you know, some, because you're doing something about it or whether because you're, you're not doing something about it or both are equally important to address. Not addressing it is sending the message that it could be sending all sorts of messages. That's the problem. You're leaving it up to interpretation. Yes. And I have to, to touch on something that you said quickly there. When a competitor has a big raise, it doesn't even bother you anymore. How did you get there for everyone listening because that's such that's so great and i i try to do that with our competitors but it's still it's challenging it is definitely challenging i know that when we first started in this space there was basically like a new company announcement i think every two weeks always on a tuesday i remember that because i'd always call my mom <laughs> on a tuesday freaking out i don't know why that was the case but i just knew i like dreaded waking up on that day because i just knew it's gonna be something and and it's hard not to have feelings around Right. I think there are certainly feelings of, you know, jealousy. How did they do that? Or, you know, maybe worry about what that means for you. But as you know, we've been doing this for over five years now. And I think what you see over time is that it doesn't matter. Right. Like if your competitor doing something completely knocks you off, that's concerning for you and your company and your company's position. So it's really more about focusing on your business, your, your, you know, your, your customers, focusing on you and executing against what you're doing. And hopefully you've built in some kind of competitive advantage where it's not so easy for a competitor to just come in and knock you off. If, if that exists, then it's really less of a concern. And I think you see, as I've gone through this and I've seen lots of companies you know, raise more money or have moments where I was like, wow, I really wish I were them. And then you see at the end, it doesn't work or they don't make or it doesn't matter, right? It's not ultimately what every company has a different journey to success, whether that's through large fundraising rounds, whether that's by bootstrapping, whether that's by raising 
minimum and it takes you 20 years to grow your business versus in two years you're a unicorn. There are lots of different ways to achieve success. And so I think part of it is really defining for yourself, what does success look like? Is success for you reaching some objective valuation? Is it for your company to be around for a long time? Is it to achieve a certain impact? Is it just to have gone for it because that's what you wanted to do and you wanted to try it? There are lots of different, I think understanding what that is really helps alleviate some of the emotional burden around the noise happening around you. So you've shared so much excellent insight for all the founders listening. We always wrap up the show with general advice for founders, you know, either things that have been super fun for you on the journey or areas, mistakes you made that you want to point out, but just anything that you could share would be great. For general advice, I would say my biggest learning, sort of similar to the theme we were just talking about, there might be some recency bias in my brain, but I think you never actually know really whether something is great or bad. Like it's very easy to assign something a value of, hey, that deal fell apart or that deal didn't work and say, this sucks. I, I wish I had that. Like you think you know what you want and you think that that's like definitely what would have been best, but I cannot count the number of times where I felt horrible in the moment because it was something I really wanted. And looking back, I think, thank God that didn't go through. Right. And so I think there's a little bit of an understanding and not projecting. I mean, it goes back to emotional control. I think it's the single most valuable tool you can have as a founder because the journey is tough. The highs are high, the lows are low. They're always next to each other. And and there's no way to tell what's coming. It might be a completely different market condition, right? It might be a competitor. There are lots of different things that are going to happen, you know, around you or to you. And being able to keep a level head, be able to keep a focus, be able to continue to navigate that is the most important piece. And so I think my biggest learning and one of the things I struggled the most with was, I think, really being able to look at each event and not feel too strongly about it any which way, right? Uh, not to say we don't celebrate wins and it's not exciting, but I think a lot of times early on, there's more no's than yeses, and there's more bad news than good news. And understanding that sometimes that bad news is not always a bad thing, and it's more of a direction, you know, it's helping you shape the direction you need to go in. And that's actually an interesting signal. If something isn't working, that's something that you should, you know, that actually... You should treat it as data and learning, not as disappointment. Taking the emotion out, emotional control, and then how you said taking, you know, neg something negative as a learning and a and making a change because of it. That I mean, that's great. Just general professional advice for everybody listening. I know that's something I work on. So thank you. Thank you. Okay, so those who want to learn more about Illumix, where do we go? Because I, I have to encourage listeners, check out the website. I was pretty caught up in it. It's really neat what you're doing. Yeah, you can go to you know www.illumix.com um, to learn more there. We're also on social media as Illumix Official. And I am on social media as just Kieran Sanhama, full name. Well, thank you for sharing so much today. I So many people listening, it's this kind of conversation. We get feedback on the show that really helps, right? Because metrics and how to put together a pitch deck is one so tactical. But this is the whole big picture 
of what founders are going through. And this kind of insight I know makes a big impact. So we appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun chatting. You've been listening to Startup Success. To make sure you don't miss out on future episodes, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. Like what you hear? Tap the number of stars you think the show deserves in Apple Podcasts. For more tools and resources for your own startup success, check out berklandassociates.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.